What is the single most important thing about you? Has anyone ever asked you that? Darren, I have a hint. It's not that you're engaged, although that's exciting. (laughs) What is the single most important thing about you? Thank you, Brandon. I see I forgot my mic. (laughs) I'd like to think about that question this morning. As we turn again to 2 Kings, you know, in the news, we regularly read of tension between Syria and Israel. This is nothing new, and I was reminded of that when I was reading in 2 Kings recently. 2 Kings records not only tension, but open hostilities and all-out war between Syria and Israel. For over 150 years, the Syrians were an ongoing threat to northern Israel. They would do systematic raids into Israel, carry away anything valuable, and capture Israelites to be their slaves. In fact, Israel's King Ahab was killed fighting the Syrians. I'm turning this morning to 2 Kings chapter 5. And as we look at this familiar passage, this familiar story, I'd like to think about what is the single most important thing about you? You know, I've been struck in studying 2 Kings about... I've I've been noticing how the people who lived several thousand years ago, how they have the same tendencies you and I do today. And as we look at this account, I'd, I'd like to notice two things. I'd like to notice, one, what God did, and two, I'd like to notice people's response to God. 2 Kings 5, I'm going to read the the chapter, and I'd like to come back and notice some things. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Consider, Therefore please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha the the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. 
Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master sent me, saying, Indeed, just now, two men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money, to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. It's quite a story. And Israel's historian recorded this, recorded what God did, and recorded people's responses to God. 
and it's for our benefit. I'd like to notice a couple things here. Naaman is uh, he's second only to the king of Syria, and the he's a mighty warrior. Notice that it's the Lord who gave him victory, because of Israel had turned their backs on God as a nation. Uh, there were still those who were faithful, but as a whole, they had turned their backs on God and were worshiping idols. You know, interesting thing I discovered while, while studying this passage is uh, the rabbis say, tradition says that Naaman was the soldier who drew his bow at random and killed King Ahab. I don't know if that is true or not. It's interesting to think about if you think about Naaman going to Israel for help. If that were the background, he's pretty desperate for help. You know, Naaman had honor, fame, power, but he had an incurable disease. He was a leper. Leprosy is a horrible disease. It's treatable today. It's known as Hansen's disease. But in Naaman's time, it was terminal. Eventually, your body would become discolored, white, deformed. You would start to lose your hair. Your teeth would fall out. And you would lose limbs, get horrible infections, and, and lose limbs. And eventually, your body would go septic. You'd die of these infections. Leprosy in that time wasn't even as treatable as cancer is today. <clears throat> So here's a, a man who has everything you could imagine, everything you'd want, except his health. He's run into something that he can't handle, something he can't control. He, he's used to, he's a tough guy, he's used to going out and making things happen. And this is something out of his control. He can do nothing. move on for the moment to the Israeli slave girl that's in Naaman's house caring for his wife. So she was captured, we're told, in verse 2 on a raid. The Syrians raided northern Israel, took her captive, and took her away into, into Syria. We're not told anything, any details about her. What was it like? Did she see her family murdered before her eyes? I don't know. But she's ripped away from her family. We're not told about how sad she must have been. Living by herself. She's young, in a foreign land. They're serving God she doesn't know anything about. I'm sure their culture is different. We're, we're not told about her homesickness. You know, if anyone had reason to be bitter, this young girl did. Everything had gone wrong for her in her short life. She could have chosen to be bitter at God. God, you allowed this to happen. She could have chosen to be bitter toward her captor. She could have said, God gave my abductor what he deserved. He's got leprosy because of the terrible way he's treated my people, and look what he did to me, and felt justified in that. But instead... Look at her response. 
Instead, she's wishing good for her captor. She wants him to be healed. She sees what it's like to deal with leprosy. She's humbly serving her captors, and she tells them about her God, about the prophet who is, as the passage says, the man of God who could heal him. She had tremendous confidence in God. God had never healed a leper through Elisha before. We know this because Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 and verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So she was telling them, God will do something. God could do something for you, even though he's never, she had never seen him do that through Elisha. But she believed God could. She really demonstrated humility by seeking the good of others without considering herself. The situation she was in is a very painful situation she's in. Let's move on and notice in, in verses 5 to 7, the king of Israel. King of Israel at this time is Jehoram. He is Ahab's youngest son. And in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, the writer gives a summary of Jehoram's reign, and, and the summary is, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He's a wicked man. And so here comes Naaman. He's desperate for a cure, and he's willing to take a letter from his king and go to Jehoram, whose father he may have killed, asking help. Even from him, you know, the things that the gold and silver that Naaman brought, someone has estimated the combined value of gold and silver in today's money was over $2.7 million. So he didn't come with small gifts, but he came prepared to pay for healing. The king of Israel had seen God do miracles through Elisha. R.D. Culver said, if, a Jewish king, if ever a Jewish king were witness to miracles to, enough to encourage faith, Jehoram was he. But Jehoram doesn't consider God as a solution to his problem. His focus is only on himself. Look what this guy's doing. He's picking a fight with me. He panics. He doesn't even see God's prophet. He doesn't see God as a solution to his problem. He doesn't look to him. For help. His focus is right here on himself. It's all about him. The king of Syria had assumed that Jehoram would have a close relationship with God's prophet, but he was wrong. The pagan king of Syria actually had more faith in God than the Israeli king did. He was willing to look to him for help. As the story progresses, we see that Elisha's not rattled. When he hears that the king has torn his clothes in distress, he says, why are you tearing your clothes? Send him to me and, and he will know that God has a prophet in Israel. He's confident 
that God can act. Here is someone seeking help from God. And Elisha's not shook up. He knows God. So Naaman shows up at his house. Now Naaman has come, Naaman has come to Israel with a military escort. He's in full military gear. He has an escort. And he shows up at Elisha's house that way. Now horses and chariots have been compared to today's tanks. So if you imagine rolling up in, in tanks, you kind of get the idea of what it was like in that day to show up with horses and chariots and all your weapons. Must have been pretty impressive. And what's Elisha's response? Elisha doesn't even come out. He sends out his servant. What? Isn't that rude? Naaman thought it was. I don't think Elisha's intent was to be rude. I think Elisha stayed inside to show Naaman that wealth couldn't buy healing, that God is not bought. He sends out his servant with clear instructions with a promise of healing if he follows these instructions. They're simple enough, but they'll take effort and they'll require humbling himself. You know, he's sent to the Jordan River to bathe himself seven times, to dip seven times in the Jordan River. The Jordan is about 25 miles away, so this is some distance. But it also made it very clear that it was not Elisha who did the healing. It was not Elisha's power, but it was God who does the healing. Elisha never came out to see him and sent him further away. If he in faith obeys God, he will be healed. But it's very clear who does the healing. It's God's work. <clears throat> I think Elisha was a humble man. He didn't want to be known as the man who healed the great Syrian commander. No. He wanted Naaman to recognize that God was the one who healed him. He wanted to point Naaman, and far beyond Naaman, other people, to, to God. Now, I believe from Naaman's response that he viewed Elisha as his social inferior. In verses 11 and 12, Naaman becomes furious, went away, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his God, wave his hand over the place, and heal the leprosy. The verb translated surely come indicates that he thought Elisha had an obligation to come out and meet him. And David Roper says the phrase to me is in the emphatic position in the sentence, and it suggests that to someone like me, he would surely come out to someone like me, to someone of my elevated position. He would surely come out. Someone has said, a conceited man is like a man up in a balloon. Everyone grows small to him, and he grows smaller to everyone else. <clears throat> no, Naaman was also offended for his country. 
Notice what he says in, in verse 12 about the rivers. Aren't the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Do you know that uh, the rivers in Syria are still known today? The, the Syrians are very proud of their, their rivers. Clear, cold water from snow mountain to mountains. They're known for their rivers. And the Jordan, if you've seen the Jordan, the Jordan River is not an impressive stream. It tends to be muddy and small, and it's, it's not much to look at. <clears throat> so not only was, well, Naaman was, was offended for his country, he felt he'd been insulted by an inferior, and he found it humiliating to wash in a muddy little river like the Jordan. It was beneath him. No, verse 13 is so interesting. His servants are more objective than Naaman is. And they come to him respectfully, My father, if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult, wouldn't you do it? Well, of course he would. Naaman would have been glad to do difficult things. He was used to doing difficult things. That's what soldiers are trained for. He's ready to show his stuff. But pride stood in the way. No, anger can be a sign of injured pride. Charles Spurgeon said, Naaman had to get past two enemies to obey, proud self and evil questioning. You and I face the same enemies today, proud self and evil questioning. You know, evil questioning says, why can't I bathe in a Syrian river? Why do I have to do it the way God said? Evil questioning says, why seven times? Why not one? Surely God could heal with one. Or why not five? Or anything but what God said. Andrew Murray said, pride, the loss of humility, is at the root of every sin and evil. Pride is at the root of every sin and evil. You know, Naaman had had a picture in his mind of how it would look when he'd come to the prophet. What, he, what the prophet would do. And it didn't happen. When it didn't happen like he had pictured it, he was upset. He was like the child who says, if you don't play my way, I'm not playing. I'll take my toys and go home. Not going to play it because I pictured it another way. Sometimes adults do that too. How often am I upset because God isn't doing what I think, what I thought God was going to do, or what I think he should do? As if I knew better than God. How often is the cure right in front of me, but I don't recognize it because it's not the way that I pictured it? You know, Naaman's pride almost kept God from healing him. Almost. But we can see in, in verse 14, Naaman listened to the appeal of his servants, and he humbled himself, and he went and in faith obeyed what God had said. And he dipped in, So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. I love the way it ends. And he was clean. Imagine this big warrior 
with, uh, we're told the, the words used to describe him in the beginning of the chapter tell us that he was large not only in stature, but in potential. And he was, he was very talented. But imagine this big warrior rippling with muscle who has not scarred skin of a, of a warrior, but the flesh of a little child. I like to feel a little baby's skin. It's so clear and soft. and <clears throat> It was new. As the verse says, he was clean. Naaman humbled himself and he obeyed. Verse Peter 5, 5 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Am I humble enough to accept advice like Naaman did? and change direction when a brother or sister points out a blind spot that I have. You know, I don't think, I can't prove this, but I don't think that Naaman's skin got progress, progressively better each time he dipped, dipped under there. Maybe you think differently, and that's fine, but I, I expect that it wasn't a progressive thing, but each time he went under, it was a step of faith. Can you imagine him going under and coming up? Nothing changed. God, I don't know about this. Well, under that muddy water again, goes down again, still like that. What is that, two? And you, you, know, and you continue like that. I think each time was a step of faith. And when he, in faith, obeyed what God said, he was healed. He was clean. Naaman's condition was hopeless from a human perspective. But when he humbled himself and in faith obeyed God's word, he was cleansed. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think too of Ephesians Chapter 2, I'm going to turn there quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, reading, I'm just going to jump in here and read verses 3 through 5. <clears throat> we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by, children, by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I'm going to stop there. There's a, a very long sentence that continues on. But I think you get the, the drift. But God, God made the difference. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. When we turn to Him in humility and confess our sins, we are cleansed just as surely as Naaman's skin was cleansed. He was healed from the leprosy. No, I love verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, it says. And he returned 25 miles back. He went back to say thank you and to recognize God's work. Recognize what God did. Notice what he says. 
He returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Elisha had succeeded in pointing Naaman to God. Naaman got it. He knew where his healing came from. He knew he was beyond hope. And he knew what he had received. He recognized that. And he wanted to worship no one but God the remainder of his life. Hence he asked for soil to take back to build an, an altar. <clears throat> you know, next he wants to give a, please accept a gift. Notice from who? From your servant. This is the man, he's talking to the man he viewed as his social inferior. And he says, please accept a gift from your servant. You serve the Most High God who healed me. And I am your servant. <clears throat> Realizing what God had done for him changed how he viewed the people around him. And I believe that will be true of you and I as well. When I recognize what God has done for me, when I realize the hopeless sin God rescued me from, I will view the people around me differently. I will be willing to serve them. Those who know God will be humble. Those who know themselves cannot be proud. I don't remember where I got that quote. You know, I think Elisha would accept nothing because he wanted him to know that his healing was a gift from God. It wasn't something that he could buy. I want to move on in the story and notice briefly Gehazi. <clears throat> in, uh, jumping in in verse 20. So Naaman had departed and Gehazi says, Look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian, not receiving from his hands what he brought. Some commentators say that in, in talking about this Syrian, it may show some bitterness on the part of Gehazi. I don't know. But it's clear that Gehazi was thinking of himself, and he saw an opportunity to get wealthy. Well, my boss doesn't take the money, I'll take it. I mean, I was involved too, right? I'm, I'm his servant. Surely I'm entitled to some of that. So he sees an opportunity to get wealthy. Reminds me of what Paul said in, in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 6, reading through 10. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We'll see that in this story. Trusting God to provide for him was not as important to Gehazi as getting what he wanted. 
So Naaman got down from his chariot. He humbled himself to meet the servant of the man he used to consider his inferior. But he gets down and meets him and gives him twice what he asked for. Gehazi's willing to lie to get what he wants. Instead of being content with what he has, with God's provision for him as Elisha's servant. You know, he gave Gehazi about 150 pounds of silver. It took two men to carry it back for him. Gehazi is an interesting man. He witnessed God's power many times. He lived with Elisha and served him. But he hadn't allowed God to cleanse him of a greedy heart. There was greed there. How did he think that he could lie and get away with it? He knew he had seen God reveal the future to Elisha. His desire for wealth was greater than his desire to honor God. This man was well aware of God's power, but he was so proud. He thought he could pull the wool over God's eyes. You know, in verse 25, when, it, when Gehazi comes back, he's hidden the stuff in his house, and he comes in before Elisha. Elisha says, Gehazi, where have you been? That was an act of mercy. That was an opportunity for him to repent and say, ah, you know, Elisha just did something really stupid. I went after him and I stopped him and to repent. But he didn't. Instead, he lies again and says, your servant went nowhere. But he discovers he can't pull the wool over God's eyes because God showed Elisha not only where Gehazi had been, but also what he intended to do with the money that he got. Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and clothing and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? It's not time for that. But God had showed him what he intended to do. You know, it, it seems harsh, the judgment on Gehazi. But I think we have to realize Look what he was saying to Naaman in accepting payment. Here, God, sometimes Elisha received gifts from people. We have record of that in Scripture, but apparently God had told him not to. And I believe it was to show that the healing is from God and it's not bought. Naaman was used to Syrian prophets accepting gifts for their services. For what they did, you brought them, you paid them big bucks. And God was different. And so he told them to take nothing. And Elisha was messing up that message. In his greed, uh, not Elisha, I'm sorry, <laughs> Gehazi, in his greed, was willing to go back and take something. You know, I'm fascinated with the people, the people's response to God. In this account, let me summarize briefly. 
So you've got Naaman, the big, tough, brave man who's a skillful warrior. He faced a disease he couldn't conquer, and in desperation, he humbles himself in faith, obeys God, and he's healed. He's cured of an incurable disease. You have the young slave girl who's ripped away from her family, a slave in a foreign land. She chose not to become better about her painful circumstances. Instead, she retained her confidence in God and wanted good for her captors. Her confidence was not disappointed. God worked through her. Look what happened to Naaman because of her confidence in God. Could she have known in that obscure place? Could she have known how God would work through her? I doubt it. But God did. The king of Israel had turned his back on God. He didn't even consider God as a solution. In spite of having a history of seeing God work. The king of Syria willingly turned to a God he didn't know for help. He had more faith. He had more faith in God than the Israeli king. You have Gehazi who witnessed God's power work through Elisha firsthand. Over and over, he repeatedly saw God reveal the future, miraculously provide, and raise the dead to life. But he wasn't content with God's provision for him. And in his greed, he, as it says in 1 Timothy, strayed from the faith. You have Elisha, who wanted nothing but to serve God in whatever way God chose. And through Elisha, God drew people to him. Now these people in this account are people who lived several thousand years ago in a different part of the world. But I'm struck with how much they have in common with us here today. They are just like us. They have the same tendencies. You know, every person is made in the image of God, and every person will ultimately respond to God in faith or will reject Him. One or the other. Everyone. My title for this sermon and the question I want to leave with you is what is my heart's response to God? I believe the single most important thing about every person is their heart's response to Almighty God. I ask you this morning, are there adjustments that need to be made in your response to God today? What is my heart's response to God? Would you stand, please? Lord, we come to you this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you for the history you have recorded here. We can see your mighty acts, what you did, how you care. You love every person and how you work and call people. Give repeated opportunities 
and your mercy. Lord, we can see people's responses to you, the positive and the negative, and may we learn from them here today. Lord, if there are adjustments that we need to make here this morning, that I need to make, would you bring those to my attention? We want to yield ourselves to you. Lord, I believe the, the most important thing about every person is our response to you. May we respond in faith so that you will be seen at work in our lives and the people around us will be pointed to you. Even this week, as we go about our duties, I ask you to bless each one as, as we go from here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.